Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 121 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I recently bought a pair of Birkenstock sliders from eBay and they are proper queefers. Mm. It basically sounds like walking makes me terrified. Do you remember those trainers I had at uh, Latitude that did that? And Jen kept saying, are you sure you're not farting? I was like, (laughs) I am definitely not farting. It is the trainers. And I love them. And it was really weird because with the squeak, they made that weird smell as well. It was really strange, Hannah. (laughs) Uh, um, Yes, I'm Hannah Dunleavy. And since we last spoke, I've been to a pub and to a beach. And neither were in anywhere as busy as Twitter had led me to believe. Just FYI. Did you shit in a box and leave it somewhere? No, not that. What we did was we just booted down the door of someone's beach hut and just went in there. (laughs) Did you see that story that a woman said that she'd found 13 turds in her beach hut? Oh, that's horrific. I don't know where it was. But what I want to know is, if I was desperate, absolutely, absolutely desperate for shit, I can't imagine that I would ever do that. But the least appealing place for me to have a shit would be a place where 12 other people have also done a shit. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's like when you go into a toilet in the pub and you check and if it's already got a poo in it, you don't poo in that toilet. You flush it and then you go in the other toilet because then you're like, I'm saving somebody else from the horror of finding that. But the trouble with that is if it doesn't go away, people sometimes hold you responsible for the floater. That happened to me at the Frog and Bucket once when I was about to go on stage. And I went in, I was like, that's disgusting. And I flushed it. And then I left. And then I, I was on stage. And then there was two women who come in behind me. And I spent the whole gig thinking, they think I left that massive shit in the toilet. <laughs> uh, were you wearing those trainers? Yeah. <laughs> Later on, I get on the Zoom to Ethiopia to talk refugees, camps and coronavirus, how women and girls are particularly affected, and World Humanitarian Day with Betelhi Mengistu, a community wellbeing initiative coordinator for the International Rescue Committee. That seems timely. It is very timely. I talked to Kate Reed Petty about her amazing debut novel, True Story, and how her time on a jury in a rape trial inspired it. And in Dunleavy Does Disaster, the loser gets eaten as we watch a live which is very bad news for me, as I've lost my bingo card. I've been fasting in excited expectation. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know where it is. It's really upsetting because I haven't been anywhere. I haven't taken it out of the house. So I think I must have just thrown it away by accident. Mm, Nom, 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 nom. (laughs) (laughs) And it won't matter the week after because I'll be dead and in your belly. (laughs) Uh, No, you'll be in a beach hut, mate. I'll have got rid of you by then. (laughs) But first, results chaos, children in danger and pissing in public. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. We do the hashtag Starmer in, hashtag Starmer out, hashtag in, hashtag out, hashtag shake it all about, hashtag do the hokey cokey, hashtag more like smoky cokey, hashtag that's what Twitter's all about. Oh, that was incredibly well done. When you sent me through all those hashtags, I was expecting a car crash, to be honest. (laughs) While clearly there are much worse things going on in the world, it's been a tricky old time writing the Bush Telegraph, thanks to the government embracing new turns with all the gusto of a knockoff satnav. Currently, Johnson and his merry band of asshats are facing pressure over the A-levels and GCSE exam grading crisis in England, caused by coronavirus combining with age-old socioeconomic class and race biases to become an A-star clusterfuck. 
A quick recap on why we're specifically here now. The coronavirus pandemic means exams were cancelled and results replaced with an off-qual algorithm. Brace yourselves for a massive surprise. The algorithm, which used schools' past results, regardless of current students' efforts, changes in staff, or any of the myriad ways a school can up its game in a year, worked beautifully for kids at, mm, say, Eton, where not one student got downgraded. Less so for the bright kids at shit schools. Basically, the system cannot account for any sudden improvement in a school's performance. If no one got an A-star before, no one can now. Put really simply, it leaves two choices, both of which are flawed. One, some students get higher grades than they deserve, but everyone at least gets what they deserve. Or two, some get what they deserve and some, and by some, we're talking tens of thousands of kids, mostly those bright kids in shit schools, get less than they deserve, slash university places lost, slash hopes and dreams shattered. So, which to do? Nurturing hopes and talents rather than extinguishing them kind of feels like a no-brainer, huh? As I speak, protests are being scheduled and a fair number of Tory ministers and backbenchers are joining those demanding Johnson step in and sort this fiasco out by using teacher assessments to grade exams and postpone the publication of GCSE results, which are currently due this Thursday, August the 20th. We'll keep you posted. Fucking hell, what a shit show. It's just absolute shit show. Lewis Goodall, who is, I believe he works for, he's a BBC journalist, I believe he works for Newsnight, has been collecting stories, Mm. some of which are just absolutely horrific, but actually do include some children at private school that have been downgraded, including one girl who was marked the lowest in her class for maths, but predicted a B. But because somebody last year got a U, somebody at that school had to get a U and therefore it was her when she'd been predicted a B. I mean, I know she went to private school, so she's got a lot of advantages, but Jesus, that is unfair. That is also very unfair. Yeah, because that's not just losing a university place, because I've seen a lot of talk about, obviously, kids from harder backgrounds who get into Oxford and Cambridge, a few and far between anyway, but those that they're losing out. But this girl can't get into any university now because she's, she's only got two grades. Yeah, and I don't know what Cambridge University is fucking playing at because it has a massive problem with the number of students from working class backgrounds it's very difficult to gauge. So the way they gauge that is who goes to a comprehensive. Well, that's not key to who comes from a working class background. No. We've got a massive problem with attracting ethnic minorities. And I know a lot of people who work at the university who have constantly reassured me that there are programmes in place to try to fix both of those things. And yet they are now turning people down for places. So it's going to be the least working class, the least diverse year of university there has been for a very long time and i don't know why cambridge university doesn't just say fuck it let's go with it they won't just be accepted on the basis of their exam results they'll have been to interviews they'll have impressed people in an interview so why the fuck would you not give them a place based on a fucking algorithm i specifically say cambridge because oxford has Apparently, some colleges in Oxford are now letting them in with the grades that they've got. So I can only hope the same thing happens here. Because otherwise, every time someone tries to persuade me that Cambridge cares, the answer now is going to be no, it fucking doesn't. It's mad. I've not even gone into the appeals process because it's crazy complicated and they withdrew it and they're putting a new one together. It's all like a mess. The whole thing is a mess. 
But there was a lot of talk of, well, once the appeals process goes through, they might not be able to go this year, but they'll get in next year. It's great. What what do you do for a year for money? Like, particularly for hard up families, your benefits stop at 18. How the fuck are they mm-hmm. supposed to, like, keep feeding people? It's, it's outrageous. Well, they get a job in that cafe. Oh, wait a minute. None of them are fucking taking on staff at the minute, are they? They're just going to be neat, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know what I was saying about the government and U-turns? Literally an hour after we recorded, it was announced that A-level and GCSE students in England will be given grades estimated by their teachers rather than by that algorithm. This brings England in line with the other UK nations. And it is, of course, excellent news for a lot of students, although not all, as many students who would now get their first choice university places are finding those places have already been given to someone else. There'll likely be a knock-on effect to next year's intake too, as courses are going to be way oversubscribed. As Lewis Goodall points out, this transfers the chaos from Ofqual, who had to come up with a new appeals process and deal with hundreds of thousands of cases, and schools, who had to navigate the process, and politicians, who had to deal with the political fallout, to universities, which are in pandemonium. If only all this could have been avoided, eh, Gavin Williamson? Oh, sorry, Gavin appears to have wet himself and hidden in the stationary cupboard. Silly boy, that would be preferable to just ballsing it out with a hunting whip on his desk. Anyway, I'll leave you with this from friend of the show, Sanjeev Bhaskar, who tweeted, I've just downgraded the government's handling of the exam results situation by 40%. Strangely, it turns out it matches their predicted grades. Fuck's sake. Anyway, let's talk about something less cheery, if you can believe it. Let's let's talk about child abuse images. Mm. Yuck, right? Yeah. Well, the sad news is I have to, because it seems that for some people, the message just isn't getting through. And the even sadder news is many of those people are judges. Let's have a look at two recent cases to prove my point. Earlier this month, former Labour MP Eric Joyce, who was found with a Category A film and admitted to making an indecent image of a child, was sentenced. The film, which he had accessed several times, featured what appeared to be seven different children aged between 12 months and seven years old. Fuck. Joyce, who lives in Suffolk was sentenced to eight months in prison, suspended for two years, and must complete 150 hours of unpaid work. He also received a sexual harm prevention order and was given an 18-day rehabilitation activity requirement and ordered to pay prosecution costs of £1,800. You may notice that none of these punishments include time in jail, which is despite Joyce having been warned that his offence passed the custody threshold. And I know there's an element that suspended sentences are actually custodial sentences, but they're not if people don't actually go to jail. Agreed. And in case you are thinking this is an anomaly, let's take a look at what happened to Roger Spackman from Exeter, who was in court in late July, having been found with more than 36,000 indecent images of children and other extreme pornography. Spackman was also a former Labour politician, this time a councillor, although I feel the need to point out that other political parties are available. (laughs) He was sentenced to 10 months in prison, suspended for two years, and ordered to sign the sex offenders register, as well as being the subject of a sexual harm prevention order. So, to be clear, that's, again, absolutely zero time in jail. I reached out to our friends at the Internet Watch Foundation, the UK charity responsible for finding and removing online child sexual abuse material, to see what they made of these cases. And although they don't comment directly on sentencing in individual cases, 
CEO Susie Hargreave said this to me. These are not victimless crimes. In every one of these images and videos, a real child is suffering real sexual abuse. If anyone thinks viewing material like this does no harm, we want them to think again. Every day, our analysts fight to rid the internet of some of the worst content imaginable. Children are abused to fuel a global trade in videos and images, and anyone watching this is perpetuating this abuse. While these images exist, the victims can find it very difficult to move on and recover. Knowing footage of your sexual abuse is available for people to watch online, sometimes years after it happened, is something which haunts many victims. I mean, this has got to improve. I don't know how it's going to improve, but it has to improve because you cannot have a situation where there is seemingly very little punishment or punishment that's financial. So some people might well be able to go, you know, fuck it or reputational, which obviously will have some effect on people. But you can't just you cannot. This is me talking, by the way. Susie stopped talking ages ago. <laughs> when the articulate stopped, like, <laughs> stop. That's that was Susie. Yeah, I'm just absolutely fucking horrified that men are not being imprisoned for this because, well, I just fucking am. Hasn't viewings of child sexual abuse gone up astronomically during lockdown as well? Spiked in lockdown, Mm. yeah. Exactly that. Thousands of migrants have risked their lives this year by crossing the English Channel in anything from kayaks to inflatable paddling pools. Last week, the ghouls of various mainstream media outlets were sending out journalists on boats to thrust microphones into the faces of terrified, desperate people on dinghies trying to land at Dover. Jump to the Daily Mail's Andrew Pearce on Sky News, smugly repeating, we're full up, with a backbone made entirely from knowing his immoral attitude is shared by far too many people in Britain, including the government and its Mm. ongoing hostile environment. Home Secretary Priti Patel's hard-nosed strategies and Prime Minister Boris Johnson's categorically incorrect labelling of migrants crossing the channel in boats as criminal is exactly the kind of shit stew that fed the Windrush scandal. Want to know what percentage of the British population refugees make up? 0.26%. That's right, just one quarter of a percent. It knocks me sick that people have the imagination to daydream about spending lottery winnings but can't find any empathy for a fellow human that has lost everything. Not even after coronavirus has shown us all how level the playing field really can be. It's not illegal to cross the channel. It's not illegal to claim asylum here. And given the amount of empty buildings in London alone, we're not fucking full up. Want to help? You can fundraise, donate funds, protest or volunteer. Check out helprefugees.org for more details. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely staggering. And I think I think that's so, I mean, you've said it all there, but the only thing that I think is, you know, worth mentioning is that we have this idea that these people are, you know, coming here in an attempt to just come here and live off benefits. And by we, I mean us as a society, mm-hmm. but not any of our listeners. Well, hopefully not any of our listeners. But actually, the people who are fleeing are generally the, the, the middle classes, the ones that actually can, the ones that actually exactly. can, can get out. So on those boats, there will be teachers and doctors and, you know, people who can play a really valuable part in our society. And I'm not saying that even if they only turn up and go to work in Costa Coffee, they can still play a valuable role in our society. But once again, we're already prejudging these people on their worth. 
I mean, obviously they have a worth as human beings, but a lot of them have a, have another worth. A lot of them, like I say, have value, are trained to do things. It's fucking outrageous. My grandparents turned up here. I mean, only for mine, I'm right enough, but it felt like a massive fucking journey for them. My granddad turned up with a bicycle and that was all he had. All he owned was a bicycle and built a life there. I don't know why it's for me to say that other people can't do that. I think it's also a really good reminder of how fucking short people's memories are we saw a dead baby on a beach what four years ago four years ago yeah and everybody said that they were never going to let this happen again the pandemic's happening absolutely and that's affecting so many people all of us but you know syria hasn't just magically got better in this period yemen hasn't stopped having a load of fucking horrors going on there the world's atrocities are continuing 70 million displaced people in the world need to find somewhere where they can just live. Yeah. Do you want some good news? I mean, have you got any really, though? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it might be good news for someone. I'm not exactly sure who has been waiting for a musical about the life of Princess Diana using the music of Steps. But if they are listening, well, it's good news for them, I suppose. Now, I've absolutely no idea if this is real or it's merely a pipe dream of one Mr. George Alexander, the man claiming to be writing the new show, entitled One for Sorrow, but it sounds like the campest thing (laughs) in the history of mankind. I'm not really sure how it will work, given most of Step's songs are covers of other people's songs, but let's absolutely keep an eye on this story to see how it develops. I mean, it sounds like a car crash, so maybe... More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I cross my legs and hope for the best. The best in this scenario being not wetting myself during a lovely night out in Soho. Thankfully, some, and I quote Tory councillor Timothy Barnes of the West End Ward here, temporary toilets have been erected on Wardour Street. Phew. Wait, oh, wait, hang on. They're... They're not toilets, Tim. They are plastic pissoirs, urinals, if you will. Very much for able-bodied men there, Tim. Women and disabled folk be damned, or at least in extreme discomfort, eh? (laughs) C'est la vie. Also, no hand-washing facilities. (laughs) Thank Christ we're not in the midst of a global pandemic. Sheesh. Hello. I just noticed you going in your bag for something and could hear... The jingle jangle of some change. Now then, if that change isn't being used for a a cup of tea or coffee or to do a worthy cause, you could consider giving it to us. And you can do that by popping over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash standard issue. And any bunts you would like to throw our way is very gratefully received and helps us keep making content that champions women. Thanks very much. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Kate Reed petty Author of True Story, which is your debut novel and quite the arrival into the world of fiction. I will get this embarrassing stuff out of the way first. I genuinely loved it. And if it's an indication of how much I loved it, I've been talking on this podcast ever since lockdown started. I've had trouble with reading and I initially thought it was that my concentration wasn't there. But then I realised it's because I wasn't very good at sitting still. I just wanted to be doing other things. Mm. So when this arrived, I thought, I really hope that I've managed to do it justice. And in fact, I loved it so much that I always put post-it notes in books where where I might want to ask a question. (laughs) 
and I could not. I was enjoying it so much I couldn't be bothered with messing around looking at the post-it notes. And so I just have cigarette papers stuck to the pages. I've not done that before. I was absolutely gripped. So well done. <laughs> what, a, what a great book. Oh, such a nice compliment. Thank you. Thank Can you. Can you start off by telling our readers what you're happy for them to know about the plot of True Story? Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's funny. There was a review that came out a couple of weeks ago and I had a couple of people email me and say, oh, is this review too, like, are there too many spoilers during this? Like, is it going to ruin the book? And they had read it and they just felt like it gave so much away. Honestly, I feel like it's hard to prepare people for what the book is going to be like, because I I pride myself on how different it is. So uh, I hope I won't, I don't think I'll give too much away. But what I like to say about True Story is that you know, the beginning of the novel, it starts at a high school lacrosse party. So it's a um, here in the United States in Maryland. And the party gets out of control and two boys drive a girl home who is so drunk that she's basically unconscious. And a rumor starts after that night about sort of what happened in the car. And that rumor radiates through the lives of four characters for the next 15 years. None of them really knows what happened, the entire truth, but they all are, are deeply affected by it. And the way that the novel follows these characters is that it switches genre as it switches different voices and includes found documents. So there is a section that is horror. There is a section that is a little bit of noir. There is a section that is a college application essay. It's a character sort of trying to write drafts of her essays. The book takes this kaleidoscopic structure, plays with these different testimonies and and the ways that sort of these these rumors and, and stories about all of our lives kind of get pieced together and what the different people say about us kind of really shapes our our sense of ourselves and our, our sense of our possibilities. So that's true story in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, it's part campus novel, it's part horror, like you said, part interview transcripts. And what I found really interesting about that mm-hmm. is uh, one of your characters is actually needlessly transcribing interviews. And I thought if, <laughs> if that wasn't an indication of someone's state of mind, I don't know what it is, because everybody who does it <laughs> hates transcribing <laughs> interviews. <laughs> There's also a screenplay for a short film about a wonderfully earnest female police detective, which I just loved. She is crying out to be played by Alison Bray if they make a film of this. She really is. (laughs) How did you decide which bits you were going to tell in which format? The screenplays that appear, um, they kind of reappear throughout the novel in little pieces. With those, you know, they're, they're, they're screenplays that were written from kind of a time before the rumor started, one of the main characters, uh, two of the main characters, actually, they happen when the the girls are about 13 and 14. And so I included those because I wanted to explore and kind of show a time in their lives when they had this just like pure creative force and kind of this boundless sense of possibility about their lives, which I think we all have. And I think we all kind of lose through puberty and high school and the grind of society and the expectations. And so I wanted, I had a lot of fun with those scripts because I wanted to kind of show that incredible amount of fun that they were having and, and kind of have their voice. Yeah, they yeah. are really fun. and But they're smart as well because uh, I noticed that it actually points out that her house, it happens to be identical to the other house. So they were clearly thinking of how are we going to film this? <laughs> Let's make all the sense the same. And it's just really light touches like that that I, I really liked because... I'm not going to say it's hard going, but you are tackling a serious subject. But by shifting through genres, I think it feels like it has a lightness of touch in parts. I'd like to talk about why you settled down to write this, because there is a a story behind that in in itself. The idea to call a novel true story is a little bit tongue in cheek, but it is a true story. It is a thing that happens time and time again. I mean, this is the kind of thing that um, I'm sort of perennially angry about. There was a, a pretty big 
conversation about sexual assault on my college campus when I was um, a senior in about 2006. You know, there's perennially news stories that come up about this. And so this is something that, you know, the idea of rape culture and the way that our society blames victims is something I have been wanting to write about for a long time. And the way that this book kind of, I feel like this book enabled me to actually do it because I was able to think about really reflecting the way the culture digests these stories and kind of spits them out. So allowing to kind of lean into that, you know, as you said, it does have kind of a light touch. It is kind of a fun thing to read, even though it is such a serious topic. It's sort of what I wanted to do because I wanted to bring readers in. And I, I think this is something we all need to talk about. And so having sort of a spoonful of sugar that makes this serious topic something that people can talk about, I think is uh, very important. To yeah. Me. You were actually on a jury in a rape trial, weren't you? That sort of it inspired I you was. to think about, or certainly I wouldn't say inspired, perhaps the, the, the better word would be reinforced what you knew about the way rape victims yeah. are dealt with. Yeah, for sure. And I, I was surprised. So I was here in Baltimore and I was surprised that they chose me for the trial because I, you know, when, when you go through, when you're chosen for a jury, they ask all these questions about, you know, your life and your politics and your family members and, and, and both the prosecution and the defense attorneys can sort of pick who they want to be on the jury as much as possible. And I was really honest about, you know, I, I was like, I have very feminist politics. I have very strong feelings about sexual assaults. Um, and they and and I sort of was expecting them to not want me on the jury. But then I got picked. and I was, it, was, it was a really tricky experience because I felt like I was being, I sort of had all of my politics and all of my beliefs were being put to the test in this very real world situation. And the three days that the jury spent deliberating was the part that was really exhausting. I and mean, I would sort of come home and talk to my spouse every night and be like, how do I, like, I can't believe these conversations that we're having. And, and ultimately it was productive. It was a very diverse jury room. It was, um, you know, Many fewer women, but all different kinds of life experiences, all different, um, all different people. And we did have really kind of fruitful conversations about everybody's expectations and biases. And I, I guess I'll say one specific story from that was that I think at one point, um, I remember having to ask the other jury members to stop using the phrase rough sex, because there was this sort of myth going around that, oh, well, maybe these like injuries that had happened to the victim were just because of rough sex, so so to speak. You know, it was sort of shocking to see those things that you read about on the internet and that people talk about so much to see them so blatantly kind of used in a real world situation. And that the end of the story, which is, it's just really a, a, a troubling story is that we ultimately did not convict. We convicted on a lesser charge, but not on felony rape. And I was, I sort of walked out of the room feeling proud that I had convinced some real steadfast opponents, people who wanted to convict not, you know, not guilty across the board. And I felt proud that I had convinced them to, at least believe the victim and convict on some of the evidence. And when I was walking out of the, the courthouse, the defense attorney pulled me over and he was like, I thought that you, your politics were different. Like what, it, like what was going on? And I tried to explain what had happened. And he said, well, you know, the, the defendant was a convicted sex criminal, like, or a convicted um, sex offender. Like, would that have changed your mind? Yeah. And it's, you know, the kind of thing it's like, this is, this is how the justice system works, right? You're not convicted on your past behavior, but it was such a, it was a moment I felt like we, it, it, it felt like we reached the wrong decision, to be totally honest about it. So that, that's troubling to see that the way the systems yeah. work beyond how individual people yeah. you know, believe. Is, is, is it, I, I, I believe I read as well that you actually encountered another one of your jurors later. 
and talked to mm-hmm. him and he basically had given it no more thought since he left the room. <laughs> he did. It's true. And, you know, he's a, he was somebody that I sort of knew, it was a, knew through a friend of a friend. Baltimore is a pretty small town. And I reached out to him to sort of talk about how disturbed mm. I was feeling about, you know, the, the decision and, and what the defense attorney had told me. Um, and we had coffee and he was like, yeah, no, I, I felt like it was a real, it was a positive civic experience. We had such a constructive conversation. We all, you know, did the best we could. I think it, that was just that difference of perspective that you see with people who are, who are, you know, want to be good people, but are not necessarily thinking about yeah. all the repercussions of their actions yeah, sometimes. It, it yeah. reminded me when I read that, I used to work for uh, a newspaper, a local newspaper, mm. and we had three consecutive rape cases in court in three consecutive weeks and the first one was you know pretty much straight up he said she said and I wasn't convinced that that was going to be you know I thought that's that's going to be not guilty and it was not guilty Mm -hmm. the second was an incident Mm -hmm. in which a woman was on walking home drunk and had been attacked on the way home and the uh the man had claimed that she had been willing and that came Mm. back not guilty and when the third one, I was in a meeting, like a conference meeting that we have where we talk about what's going where in the paper. And the news editor knocked on the door and she said that the third case, and that was actually a case of a woman who had woken up and one of her neighbours was in her house and had attacked oh my her, God. had also come back not guilty. And I looked at the news mm. editor and I just went, what the fuck? And she was like, I yeah. know, I'm amazed. She walked out and I started to, well, I suppose, kick off, as you do. I mean, I felt like I wanted to tip a table over. And then suddenly I realised that everybody else in the room was just waiting to just carry on with the meeting. And I was the only person who was, you know, absolutely incensed by this. And I just think it, Mm, it was so clear to me then the difference between the way that some people look at, at rape victims and other people. The injustice to me was just so clear that I just, it's not that it's an upsetting story. Yeah. When you're a journalist, you come near upsetting stories all the time. It was just so, so totally unjust. I wonder now, that was probably about a decade ago. I wonder now whether things have changed. Probably not, sadly. Not not in the world, yeah. but maybe in newspapers. Maybe there are more conversations that sort of, about that sort of thing. Yeah, I think so. I- yeah, I think we're, I mean, I, I, I always talk about, um, you know, there's a great book that a woman named Chanel Miller wrote that was published last year called Know My Name. She was the victim of an assault. It was, it's sort of known as the Stanford rape case. There was a young man that. who was a swimmer yeah. at Stanford. Yeah. And he similarly claimed that she was willing and, you know, and it, it was, it's sort of a horrible case. I think the judge gave him like a six month sentence or something just, a, a, even though he was found guilty, the judge was sort of like, oh, it's a nice young man. He doesn't deserve mm. this, you know? And Chanel Miller was sort of kept, she was kept anonymous through the trial. And then she broke her silence with her, her victim statement, victim impact statement went viral. Um, and then she's published this memoir last year. That's just a beautiful searing book. And it, I think it's done very well. And I, I do think people are, more people are kind of opening their eyes and, and understanding the ways that we've all kind of been trained yeah. to see these cases mm-hmm. differently. But I do think there's still more, you know, I do wonder if, if there is now more pressure on victims to tell their story a certain way. I wonder if there is, you know, a myth that it is somehow quote unquote easier to come forward now post yeah. me too. And that that would somehow, you know, even undercut the, the idea that women should be believed or any victim should be believed. So it's it's definitely evolving. Well, that's interesting. That brings me to my next question. At the, the sort of preface of your book, you talk about who these stories actually belong to. 
And I suppose an example mm-hmm. of that is I just told a story about three women being sexually assaulted and managed to make it somehow about me. <laughs> no, 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 I think... <laughs> but I, I think that is common. I think there is... I mean, I live in the country that, that went totally mad when Princess Diana died. There is like an, a, an urge to place mm-hmm. yourself at the centre of a story. But also I think it's it's very it's very difficult to also uh, for me I mean I I am a child of an alcoholic and I'd like to get onto alcohol with you later mm. um but when I decided to start talking publicly about that I had to ask myself the question what part of that story was my story and what part of that story was other people's stories was my sibling's stories or my dad's story or yeah. you know my mum's story so I think it is a really there's a fascinating not there did you in writing this do you think you got any closer to the answer of who these stories belong to (laughs) (laughs) yeah I don't think I did I mean it is you're right it's such a thorny question but I think that that is the in a in a way that's almost kind of like the essence of being human is that we are social creatures and we do share each other's experiences and we feel empathy for each other but also that can then shade into redirecting attention onto oneself or redirecting attention away from what's really at issue I mean, I, I think through the writing of the book, I was really interested in the idea that there is an expectation that certain people will speak up or that an expectation that people sort of owe something to society, which I don't think is true. I think it, it is sort of up to each individual to choose how they want to share themselves and their stories with the world. And I think, you know, I think we're all allowed to do that in, you know, if we're if we talk about what was your first job or, you know, mm. any other kind of mundane fact, we're allowed to kind of shape our personas and you know, with social media, we do that. We're all getting really expert at sort of becoming our own PR experts and, and presenting a certain self to the world. I do have one bone to pick with you, though, I have to say about this book. And that's after barreling through it, learning something that I learned at the end now means that I have to reread it almost immediately. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's a shame you don't get a second bunch of money for a reread because uh, that would be a marvellous. Um, like movie exact, tickets. Exactly that would be great. <laughs> I think in particular, it's the the time that Nick spends in the wilderness, sort of metaphorically and um, literally, uh, which is, for me, I think is the, the best, the most intense part. His attempts to sort of bring on rock bottom for himself, I found it genuinely very insightful about alcohol as someone who's grown up around alcohol. I don't, you've done your research. I don't know how mm. you achieved it. Um there's a brilliant bit, I've actually got it here, in which you talk about the life of a drunk essentially ha- was having a very urgent morning. You know, you wake up and there mm. are just things that need doing. You need to wee, you need to be sick, you need to sort that mess out you left overnight. You maybe have to drink some water. Yeah. And then the rest of the day is spent in idle contemplation of what you are like as a human being. So um, <laughs> I think that's beautiful. Um I just thank you. I just wondered if you could tell us some of your thoughts about alcohol and how that fits into the the wider story. Yeah, I mean that that section did did sort of start. You know, it, it is so. This is one of the lacrosse players who is sort of tangential to the rumor in the beginning, and he is he's now I think he's you know seven or eight years older and only like a, a hair wiser, um, and is sort of you can tell he's plagued by that story, but really isn't willing to face it as he, as he's not willing to face a lot of things in his life. And so in, in some aspects that sort of like that alcoholic character is a little bit of a trope of horror and a little bit of a trope of, of some noir and other fiction that that sort of like hard drinking, you know, tortured soul white man is a, is a classic yeah. literary figure. So I wanted to kind of lean into that a little bit. I did sort of intend that section to be a kind of punishment for Nick, that he's a character who is unwilling to, face his own complicity and is going to be forced to confront that through 
his own decision making for sure, like his own his his sort of inability to face the truth is part of what pushes him forward in that kind of horrific world, right? It's sort of, it's sort of a horror movie, yeah. Cabin in the Woods kind of kind of scenario. Yeah, it's really great. I mean, you say Bacchanalia in, in many ways, bits of it reminded me, and this is an absolute com- uh, compliment, obviously. Mm. A, 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 quite a lot of it reminded me of Donna Tartt and the way she writes, which is, which is, yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful compliment. <laughs> Thank one you. one of the compliments today. Um, <laughs> now, speaking of which, I can be as effusive as I am here. I also read a review of yours of this book that started with the words, holy shit, which I think is, uh, <laughs> which is a great way. Um, I interviewed Kelly O'Sullivan the other day. Her debut film, St. Francis, is kicking up a storm at cinemas at the moment. And I asked her a question. I'm going to ask you the same question. Having people be incredibly enthusiastic about your debut effort, is that lovely or is that just piling on the pressure for what comes next? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a great question. um, It's lovely. I'm so grateful for it. I mean, I, I never thought that this book would be interesting to anybody beyond myself. I I was writing it purely out of a combination of compulsion and kind of a little bit of playfulness with like the section of the woods, for example. And so I, I wrote it without expecting anybody to read it. So the fact that I was able to, you know, get an agent and a publisher and that even anybody, even to have one person read it feels like a huge gift. But the pressure that you mentioned is very real. Um, It's, it's especially with such a, this is such a um, kaleidoscopic book. And so it's, it's, I think people's expectations are going to be very um, particular for what I'm bringing out yeah. next. But yeah, you know, I heard, I heard the other thing I heard Garth Greenwell was talking about his, his second book has, has just come out and he talked about it's harder with the second time to convince yourself that nobody is going to read it. And I feel like that is exactly how I feel <laughs> as I'm going through this final writing process of my second novel now. Can you tell so us anything about it at all or is it all still under wraps? I feel like it's a little bit under wraps. I'm not willing to commit to exactly the shape of it, but it did sort of start as an apocalyptic um, story about sort of a flooded Great world. Yeah, no. And actually with this current, you know, in under lockdown, the book has changed pretty significantly in the past couple of months because that, I, I've been feeling really sort of um, a kind of naiveness about some of the apocalypse fiction that I was writing. And so it's been, it's changed because of that a little bit, but hopefully it'll be, I think, in the, I think in the right direction. Excellent. So True Story is out now, all good bookshops. It is absolutely excellent. I would certainly advise that everybody reads it. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This was a real, a real pleasure of an interview. Hello, I am joined on Zoom by Betleem Mengistu, a community wellbeing initiative coordinator for the International Rescue Committee in Ethiopia. Hi, how are you? I'm all right, thanks. How are you doing? Good, good. Busy, right? Busy, yes. (laughs) So you manage a team of 58 women who provide life-saving support to refugee women and girls in refugee camps. Clearly, the pandemic must be having a huge impact on what's already a pretty dire reality. Could you tell us what it is like in the camps at the moment, please? Uh, yes. So we operate the WP programming or Women Protection and Empowerment Programming within IRC. In Ethiopia, we operate in 13 refugee camps and more than 10 internally displaced people sites. We closely work with women and girls who are living in these refugee camps and internally displaced uh, sites. 
Due to COVID-19 outbreak, there is movement restriction. Yeah. But within the refugee camps, they can move. But to go outside of the camp, it's restricted because of COVID. Just to make it maybe a bit specific, we work with women and girls on gender-based violence, prevention, and response programming. Due to like the COVID outbreak uh, and from the reported GBV cases, we understand that gender-based violence cases particularly, sexual violence cases and intimate personal violence cases are increasing. Yeah. Yeah, we recently conducted uh, a remote safety audit assessment, and that assessment also revealed that women feel that GBV cases are increasing after COVID-19. The cases were there before. It happens in every context and especially in emergent situations. But now the additional challenge of COVID is exaggerating it. Yeah. It's particularly hard for women and girls with disabilities and women who are older as they face challenged access services. Moreover, we understood that forced marriage, you know, denial of resources, emotional violence, sexual exploitation and abuse were reported as an increasing concern during this outbreak. Women and girls' movements for basic needs like water, firewood, healthcare, market access or livelihood is restricted due to the COVID-19 safety restriction that is in place by the government. Uh, Ethiopia is currently in state of emergency, so there is movement restriction and also public gathering restriction. So this is you know, affecting women and girls who are living in the refugee camps and in internalized uh, people sites. In the camps, most people, you know, they rely on food support. And due to this outbreak, they have to wait long uh, lines for food because of the physical distancing measures. So there is a lack of sufficient food supply in the camps. Women and girls in the refugee camps, as well as in the internal displaced people sites, they engage in small businesses so that they can support their family, particularly they are the primary caretakers of their children. So they usually engage in small businesses uh, to support their families. So some of them uh, sell like handicrafts and some others engage in micro trades and small shops. And they get these supplies for their business from nearby towns, like outside the refugee camps. Yeah. So, But now, uh, due to this movement restriction, they cannot go outside of the camp and buy things they can use in their businesses. Some of them can access supplies within the camp, but the price is very high. Okay. Uh, so it's not profitable. So they stopped uh, working in these economic sectors. So this is uh, affecting their family's life. And also their independence as well, I guess. That's some hard-run independence that they've not got at the moment. Yes, yes. So what is your biggest fear with the situation right now? Yeah, I mean, um, the, the Ethiopian government, uh, they, you know, established like isolation centres, uh, quarantine sectors across the country. But if the situation continues like this and it gets worse, uh, I'm afraid that the health system will be affected hugely. Yeah. Uh, especially for uh, you know for people who are living in humanitarian settings, they'll be uh, affected significantly because accessing health services is essential even before you know COVID nineteen outbreak. And now with this outbreak, it will be very difficult for them to access the services. Is there any good news coming from the camps at all? Yes, I mean the the good news is there is no movement restriction within the camp. I think that that's a good news because at, at least it allows them 
to access some of the services in Taijacam. Uh, the other challenge is, uh, for instance, some of them, they might not have mobile phones to access the services remotely. So they should go in person to access the services. So in such kind of circumstances, like allowing uh, movement with restriction within the site that come is, I think, essential. August the 19th is World Humanitarian Day. And I'm in the UK and I'm looking at the situation in the UK right now with desperate people taking huge risks to land on our shores in the hope of a better life. But there is this abhorrent attitude towards them by our government and by swathes of the population. And I know this attitude to refugees isn't just in the UK, it goes across the globe. You work with refugees. How do we change other people's attitudes towards these people? I think it's sad to see uh, anyone forced to take risks like crossing seas uh, in order to find safety. So, for instance, Ethiopia is the second largest refugee hosting country in Africa. It's also fast becoming the most progressive on the continent in responding to forced displacement. If properly implemented, Ethiopia's version of the comprehensive refugee response framework, in short, it's called SRRF, uh, which combines development and humanitarian aid, uh, will benefit both refugees and host communities. So, for instance, refugees, particularly women and girls, are positively contributing to local communities. This is like in Ethiopian context. Yeah. They are engaged in small uh, business activities and they are also supporting the local community and stimulate local market system. They also like bring new ideas, initiative that supports the local economy. So the existing trade system around border areas is being facilitated between refugees and host communities. So they they are contributing uh, significantly to the local markets, especially in the border areas of Ethiopia. So I believe that they can also bring positivity to different countries. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And it baffles me that people seem to find it impossible to empathise with someone who has lost everything. There are 70 million plus displaced people around the world at the moment. So do you think mm-hmm. we've lost the human stories to numbers and fear? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, personally, I think that the coronavirus being a global pandemic, everyone is affected in some way yeah. and should therefore have a little more empathy. Absolutely. But in reality, yeah, but in reality, our own lives are very difficult at that moment which makes us focus more on our own problems and become a bit more you know, selfish. Uh, it's also easier sometimes to ignore uh, what's happening to others so we don't have to think about it or do anything about it. But we should remember that there are a lot of people who are doing positive things and that listeners can support us uh, to support diverse groups of people through our viruses like coronavirus appeal. Uh, at IRC's uh, website, rescue-uk.org. You are one of those people doing good things and helping others. How did you get into this line of work? I started working with International Rescue Committee seven years ago in Ethiopia. My first degree is in law. So I started volunteering in uh, a local in, uh, non-governmental organization. And while I, wor- I was working with them, uh, I was closely working with women and girls. And my first-hand experience working with women and girls you know, enabled me to see the challenge that women and girls face every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really inspires me to 
continue working with women and girls, especially people living in humanitarian settings. Was it something that you'd always wanted to do, to volunteer and to be engaged in this humanitarian work? Yes, yes. I mean, I was interested while uh, I was studying law uh, in the university. So that's why I started like volunteering with a local non-governmental organization. Basically, it's like a women rights organization. Great. And so if people can't volunteer for whatever reason, how can the general public help refugees? What can we do to pitch in and to make their situations better? Yeah, I think um, we should not believe everything they, we read in the press. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we need to be more uh, empathetic to the plight of people taking great risks and uh, support registered organizations working with the refugee and as asylum seekers, including uh, International Rescue Committee, at our website, rescue-uk.org. Thank you so, so much for all the work that you do. It's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what terrifying look at a possible future did we watch this week? This week, we watched 1993's Alive, which is based on a true story of a 1972 plane crash in which a Uruguayan rugby team and their friends and supporters and family members were on a plane that crashed in the Andes and not found because of bad weather conditions for, I believe, 70 days? Fucking hell. Yeah, and what happened and how the ones that did survive, survived. Starring Ethan Hawke, John Malkovich, briefly, and indie darling Ileana Douglas. And then a shitload of people I thought, what have I seen him from? What's he been in? Why do I know that guy? Who's he? One of the guys that I thought I recognised was Roy. And I couldn't identify why I recognised him. And even after Googling him, I couldn't identify where I recognised him from. He's the one that walked along going, I'm not ready for this. I don't like this. This is hard. We're all going to die. And what I will tell you is, he shares the same birthday as me. So I feel, <laughs> I feel like if I was going to be anyone in that situation, I'd have been Roy. And to be fair, Roy survives at the end of it. So maybe it's not a bad way to be. It's true. Poor Roy. My heart went out to him where they're just like, there's a really funny bit where they're going to him. You fix the radio. You're going to fix the radio. And he's just got a hold of a whole bunch of wires with yeah. no fucking clue what to do with them. And he goes, I just helped my cousins with their stereo. It had a booklet. <laughs> <laughs> he also says um i'm very emotional right now and i think oh roy we're all a bit roy sometimes aren't we i'm glad yeah, he survived even me you look at it most of them look like the strokes <laughs> <laughs> except one of them who looks like a young john bon jovi and one of them looks like the doctor looks like not like a rugby player so much as he does like an accountant from ohio that's basically what happens and everybody knows the plot of this everybody knew the plot of it before it went i actually saw this in the cinema everybody knew the plot of it it's about whether or not you'd ever be desperate enough to eat your friends and family in order to survive and, and this is a question it's interesting with this film because this was a question they had to face really quickly in a lot of other things that are about 
cannibalism say it happens in the the excellent television series the terror it happens in antonia bird's ravenous and the famous story of like the donna party in america most of these people have been in a situation for a really really long time before they've exhausted all these people had nothing it this it happens early that they have to talk about eating flesh i think it's 10 days in they've run out of like mini bags of peanuts <laughs> good job they went on a Ryan airplane otherwise they just had those little cans of Pringles but anyway so there's an excellent moment where they decide that they're gonna eat flesh it's it's he's not called Nando but that's what I kept calling him Nando Nando Nando, yeah. Nando Ethan Hawke's character pretty early adopts the idea he wants to eat a pilot and they have a conversation and then he's outside and someone says to him incidentally I just want to say Ethan Hawke is way better in this film when he's in a coma than when he's not <laughs> Agreed. And somebody says to him, they've decided to pray on it to see if God gives them the, the answer. It reminds me of my favourite bit of Father Ted when uh, they accidentally give the house to a character who is supposed to be Sinead O'Connor. They accidentally give her the parochial house and they end up sleeping in a tent outside. And Dougal says, what are we going to do, Ted? And Ted says, I'm going to leave a pen and paper outside the tent and hopefully when we wake up, God will have written down what we need to do. <laughs> <laughs> so that actually made me giggle. Can I just say something about Nando? And that is, I wouldn't, because he is the first one who is like, I'm going to set out across the Chilean mountains. And they're like, you'll never make it. And he says, I'm going to eat a pilot. It's pretty much word for word. Do you think that's where Nando's got the idea from? Like a taste of chicken? <laughs> Could be. a taste of chicken? I don't know. Maybe. it's uh, What chilli rating do you think a, a human gets? <laughs> the, the bodies are almost laid out like a buffet, aren't they, at that point? And, they decide... <laughs> yeah, and all you can eat. It raises an interesting question of whether or not you would eat flesh. To me, that's one point you have to make. But then the other point is if you actually had to cut it off and eat it yourself, which they do in this. And then it occurred to me that if eating flesh was an acceptable thing to do, if eating human flesh was an acceptable thing to do, you know there would be a movement from some foodie wankers where they were like, oh, I don't eat pre-processed human flesh. I like to cut (laughs) it off a corpse myself. I like to hunt down a human in the forest. Exactly. My My kids know where human flesh comes from, (laughs) do your kids? (laughs) Um, it's weird, isn't it? Because I think when I was watching it, and I've never seen this before, I had to make it funny. Like, I cracked the Nando's joke then and about the chilli bit, because otherwise it, it was literally making me feel physically queasy and a bit hungry. It was a really weird feeling. Yeah. Because they talk about food all the time, so... Whether or not it's a good film, I think entirely lays in the fact that the most interesting part of this film, outside of whether or not like you would and I think we'd all say no but I also think that's because none of us have actually been genuinely starving hungry and therefore it's kind of a hypothetical question isn't it well I I mean genuinely starving hungry I mean I have been caught on a train with our sandwich before and that is not pleasant (laughs) (laughs) but the most interesting part of this and this film is apparently pretty accurate to what the official accounts are of what happened Nando and the doctor, I think he was called Roberto. Yeah. In order to get help, climbed a mountain that's as high as Mont Blanc. They climbed that with no kit, no experience, no clothes, no food, and then walked 50 miles for help. And that happens in about 30 seconds, that story, essentially. And that to me, I mean, I talk about it a lot. I fucking love 
touching the void. And I mean, I bloody love a triumph of the human spirit story. And there, in that journey, is to me the more interesting story than a lot of the sitting around arguing, waiting to die that happens in this film. And I would say yeah, that... it's interesting why they decided to put the focus on, like, the inside of the airplane for so much of the film, I guess. It wants to be dark because I think it wants to talk about the idea of whether or not you would eat your... That's what it wants to focus on. But at the same point, yes, you do see them like... I mean, you do see flesh, and but it's not dark because it's also wrapped up in this kind of Hollywood sheen. They talk about, they talk about God a lot in this. And I know it's because they were religious people, but nonetheless, yeah. it feels like it's wants to do the dark thing but then pulls off at the last minute and goes oh no but jesus will forgive him so it's absolutely fine so as a story it's fucking incredible but i can't help but feel there are probably books out there written by some of the survivors of this that tell a better story than this film does i agree with you i think the focus of the drama is wrong just because well, not wrong i mean i don't make films but it feels a little bit skew whiff when there's there's little action there's some really interesting moments seriously when that avalanche hit i was like the poor fuckers mates like things weren't going great anyway this isn't going to help but yeah it felt it made it plodding which is a shame when it's such an incredible story to feel a bit like come on let's get a bit more oomph into it when it feels like it's not doing a very good service to the people who have survived this incredible experience. I agree. I think if they made this film now, if they were making this post-Touching the Void, because Touching the Void did open up the idea that there were other things, you know, like the, the, what, the Franco film where he cuts his arm off that's based on a true story. What's that? 127, 127 days. hours. Yeah. yeah, hours. That's right, not days. Fucking hell, he's been long dead by then. What well a Lucy. Um, I think if it had been made post that, it may be a different film because in it as well, like there's a bit where five days in and none of them have, have even got any stubble. At the end of it, they, they're all smiling at the plane. They have the cleanest teeth and they yeah. do not have malnourished bodies. I think now, sort of post 127 hours and Touching the Void, but also post things like The Machinist and Hunger, people would be expecting something different of this. People would be expecting actors to be slightly more realistic looking in it yeah i agree yeah i was laughing at how even the ones that had beards had really lovely coiffed beards they didn't have sort of we've been out here for 70 days beards lucy did you like it i thought i was going to like it more so everything that you say i totally agree with i watched this on i think the hottest day of the year so when I was seeing them, you know, all shivering and putting on jumpers, I was like, well, you lucky bastards. I'm sweating from my eyeballs. <laughs> but I agree. They, the thing that, that struck me right from the beginning, the first note that I've written is lovely hair. They have just such <laughs> wonderful hair. And there were some bits in it that were quite funny and I think unintentionally funny. So I think it was, yeah, Pablo, he, he after the crash... He taps, I think it might be Nando on the shoulder and says, have you got a minute? And he says, yes, what is it, Pablo? And he goes and just points and he's got a massive piece of metal (laughs) sticking from him. And yeah, it didn't feel as, obviously they suffer in it and the whole having to eat human flesh, which 
their argument is they, they're going to eat the pilots because they blame the pilots for mm. it, which I think is really, that's really, really harsh to say, oh, well, the no, pilot's there to blame. Apparently, though, that was the pilot's fault. Well, I mean, I know that they crashed the, the plane, but... No, no but they, they also, they, like, were, in real life, they had misread their... They thought they were somewhere different. Oh, fuck so it then. It, Tuck it, in. <laughs> and when they were cutting, because it was like the... You only got to see them, like, cutting into their arse, I think. And they were, and I've written down bum cheek jerky, because that's what it looked like. You know, yeah, the bits it did look of, like jerky. Yeah, and it did make me a little bit hungry. It made me want to eat some jerky and drink red wine from a cap as I was watching it. I thought I'd well, quite funnily, like to act this out. <laughs> funnily enough, pre-recording, Mickey and I were both saying that we both watched it having not had dinner and then we were both starving. Obviously, I was the level of starving that they were. I mean, I just yeah, had totally. no tea. Yeah. Uh, but that was not sensation, but I don't watching think people eat people's bums and me go, hmm, this is making yeah. me really hungry. <laughs> but I don't think it's because we want to eat other humans. I think it's because the focus is on food. They're yeah. just talking about food all the time. Because yeah. so, I had some Doritos and I was fine. I, oh. didn't, I didn't have to chow down on another human. I think the um, character at the beginning that I appreciated the most, and then he kind of didn't really have much of a focus is the coolest fuck Bobby Francois, which is, uh, this, we focus on a guy coming out of the wreckage. And then there's the, he's got like beautiful blonde hair and he's just sat on a suitcase, um, just smoking a fag, like nothing's happened. He looks exactly the same as a young bon, John Bon Jovi. That's yes. that, that one. Yeah, just very, very cool after a whole plane has broken in half and crashed, just smoking a fag. So yeah, Bobby Francois, mega cool. I think it's quite cool. Like the, obviously the relationships shift. So you've got the guy, he's called Antonio and he immediately takes on this leadership role and the others resent him for it, but also aren't really getting together to do anything apart from obviously Roberto's a doctor in training and he's getting on with stuff. But the kind of slight Lord of the Flies vibes. Yeah. I, I enjoyed how the relationships shifted and the tensions there and how like, some of them just totally go mad very, very quickly, just lose their shit, while others have this incredible stoicism. It's amazing strength of character. In any sort of apocalypse or disaster situation, I'm pretty sure that I would die first, or at least that would be best for everyone, because I don't think I'd be able to I'd just be like, oh, God, what's happening? No, I don't like it. I don't like it. But, yeah. I liked those tensions and how they were explored and would have liked to see maybe a bit more of that rather than them just sitting in the sunshine outside of a crash plane. Yeah, agreed. Should we go to the lists? And by lists, I mean the eight things that I could remember that were on mine. Hannah's lost a sheet, Lucy. Oh, no, but does, does that mean that you get to make a new one? I don't know. I have two. I have two. I have three. Oh, oh Mickey. Lucy has two. I have three. Go on then, Lucy. Okay, so I have... Well, if I'm allowed this one, I'm, I want to change it slightly. It says perfect makeup all the way throughout, but I want to change it to perfect hair, beards, and clothing as well. They didn't get dirty clothes. So if you're going to allow me to have that one, there's no real signs of kind of struggle in, in the way that they look. And the other one is Brexit analogy. So when they start eating each other, one of the characters says it's the beginning of the end and that's a bit like Brexit isn't it so 
Yeah, <laughs> we'll have that. <laughs> I feel like Lucy's got zero in this round. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> I thought I thought for Brexit analogy, she was just going to look to the future of fear, hunger, despair, cold. Yeah. Pain. All of that. It's all linked in. <laughs> yeah, I've got adopt brace position, obviously, because they crash. And then I've got thing you couldn't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. And I'm not going to go with eight human flesh because I don't, I don't know. I don't know, do I? I haven't been stuck on a mountain for 10 days. I'm going to go with believing God. Carlitos leads his prayers every evening. And the, the one guy that says, I'm an atheist, dies in the landslide. Dies in, no, no, he doesn't. What happens is they make him pray again. And they're like, you're definitely going to do it after the first avalanche. And he goes, I'm still not doing it. I'm agnostic. Then they hear a rumbling and he goes, Hail Mary, full of grace. Oh, that's right. But nonetheless... He then starts believing in God, doesn't he? And I couldn't do that. I don't know that I could do that. I think I could eat human flesh before I could say the Hail Mary. Although I will say in Carlito's defence, as someone who doesn't believe in God, I do believe that sitting on the top of a mountain on a sunny day with a handsome man who's talking about art is the kind of place that you might believe that you could believe in God, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, which is what when John Malkovich is doing the Carlitos bit at the top yeah. and the tail of it, he says he discovers a different kind of God as well. Yeah. I have three. I have nature, you cruel mistress, not for the crash, but for the avalanche that happens halfway through. I have got mid-disaster punch-ups, which are happening all over the place. You know, Antonio gets into one when, you know, someone dies, there's another one. There's There's all sorts of wranglings going on. And I have got Hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? Mr. John Malkovich in Con Air and in the other one about the oil rig. There is another guy in this, the engineer. That is also, is also Con, Air. Con Air. Yeah. It's like a plane crash reunion. Oh. <laughs> Have you done Con Air already? Yes. yes. Oh, what a shame. Standard issue for all women.